We're in Mark. We're in chapter one. Uh, if, if you haven't been, uh, if you haven't been the last couple of weeks, if you're visiting with us today, we, we just started this series. We're walking through the gospel of Mark uh, piece by piece. I'm really excited to, for us to dig through the story of Jesus together from the unique perspective that Mark brings us. So let's go ahead and read our text. Um, we're going to be in Mark chapter one, starting in verse 16. And it tells us this. Actually, let's do this. Um, I, I'm actually going to start, uh, I'm going to start a little earlier than that. I'm going to start in the end of, of Mike's passage from last week. And then the reason for that is this. Um, we've talked several times about, about Mark as audio drama, right? The idea that, that Mark was written for the purpose of being heard. And this Mark tells the stories in kind of the short and succinct way, because you then interpret the story through the ones that are around it. And so I want to give us that experience. So we're actually going to start back in verse 14, and then we're going to read through our passage today, which is starts in verse 16. So, so it says this, uh, the 14th verse of the first chapter of the gospel according to Mark tells us this. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending the nets. And immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. And this is the word of the Lord. So, this is, this is a familiar story to us. If you've, if you've spent time in the church, then, then it's, it's quite likely you have read or heard before about the, this scene that we call right, the, the calling of the first disciples, right? Like Jesus calling these, this first group of men to actually dedicate their lives to following him and sitting under his teaching. Um, that I, I want to do something though I want us to walk back through the actual story really quick. And then I want, to, I, want us, I want us to get ourselves in a certain mindset. And the reason is this. This story is, is found in one form or another in the entire fourfold uh, uh, testimony of the Gospels. We, we hear about Jesus' calling of the first disciples in, in all the accounts of Jesus' life. And, and they all tell essentially the same story. And yet all four stories feel very different that there's a different feel to them, the way they, the, the different authors choose to present this story to us. And what I, what I want us to avoid is this. Mark tells us this story in the most succinct form of the four with the least amount of, of detail. And so immediately you begin filling it in with the detail you know, probably specifically from John's telling, but, but also from, from the other three because they tell the story in a longer form. And, and that's, I mean, that's, that's natural. You can't avoid that. You know what you know about the story. But, but I want to encourage us to, to let Mark speak to us on its own terms because the, the way Mark tells us this story, the unique feel that Mark gives to his, his telling of Jesus's life, I think is going to speak to us in some fresh ways that we can really, really easily miss. If, if, we just, if we just hit the text with our pre-existing knowledge of the rest of the canon. 
So essentially the story is this. Jesus has returned to Galilee to begin his ministry. That's where, that's where Mike left off in the story last week, right? So, so Jesus is from Nazareth. Nazareth is in the northern part of the kingdom. If you flip to the back of your Bible and you see that, you know, that color map back there, right, of Israel in the time of Jesus, the way Israel is set up is you have, you have Galilee up north and you have Judea in the south and in the middle you have Samaria. In the south is where Jerusalem is. It's where the temple worship takes place. It's where a lot of the religious feasts and festivals happen. Samaria is in the middle and everyone hates Samaria. Sorry, Samaria. And then up north is Galilee, which is the more, the more uh, largely considered to be the more rural expression of Israel, although there are some major, large and important cities in Galilee. But for the most part, it's the more rural part of the kingdom. Jesus is from the northern part of the kingdom. In the beginning of Mark, he travels down into the wilderness outside of Jerusalem. So along the Jordan River, around Jericho, where the story has taken place up to this point. He goes and he receives ministry and teaching and baptism from John the Baptist in the wilderness outside of Jerusalem. And, and then it tells us after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee. So the idea there is Jesus has, has come down from the north, down to the south. He's hung out in the wilderness of Judea. And now that John the Baptist's ministry is kind of kind of slowing down and coming to its end in his arrest, Jesus returns home. He goes back north to Galilee, although the, the scripture would say he goes down because anytime you leave Jerusalem, you're going down, which is really confusing since he's going north. But that's, he goes back to Galilee and he begins his ministry. He begins proclaiming and, and we hear this word, these phrases, right? The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So Jesus has begun his Galilean ministry, which in Mark's telling is going to take up most of the story. We're basically going to be in and around Galilee until chapter nine or so. So this is where Jesus is going to spend most of his time. And we've been given a summary of his message. So as he's begun his ministry, he's back home. He's, he's on the, the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, we will find out a little later that he's actually close to the city of Capernaum. Uh, but he's on the shore and he's walking along and he sees these two fishermen casting their nets. And he says, hey guys, you should follow me and I'll make you fish for people, which is a totally like that's a reasonable thing, right? So they go, yeah, sure. And they throw their nets aside and follow him. And he goes along a little further and finds two guys in their, in their family fishing boat, mending their nets after the day. And he says, you should follow me. And they go, of course we should. And they leave their dad there, jump out of the boat and they follow him. And that's the end of the story, right? That's, that's basically what we've got. That's Mark's telling of it. Jesus walks up, he sees some guys, you should follow me, okay, you should follow me, okay. And then they go and they follow him. And that's the whole telling, which, which by the way, going back to the previous point, I think that's why we immediately want to start filling in other details because that's a weird story, right? It's really quick and really short. And a lot of it doesn't make sense on a cursory reading that this guy would walk up to these men in the midst of their labor. I mean, the image there, can you imagine, can you imagine if you were at work in the middle of your day and some preacher walked up to you and said, you should walk out of here and just follow me. It'll be cool. And you're like, yes. He comes to you, listen, right now, you are a marketing manager, but I will make you a marketer of people. 
And you say, of course, that's reasonable. And so you leave your office and you follow him. This is an, an interesting story that, that doesn't, it doesn't, like, it doesn't have good resolution on our, on our cursory reading of it, right? When, when you just kind of get through the story, you go, I don't, I don't get it. I don't, I don't understand that piece of it. So here's what I want us to do this morning, because I think there's several things in here that are going to be really, really good for us, is we're going to walk through a couple contextual pieces that, that we've probably missed out on in our cursory reading. Then we're going to look at a couple linguistic pieces of why and how Mark chose to structure this. I think that'll lead us to, to what the Holy Spirit wants to tell our church this morning, which will then lead us into Jeremiah, into the Old Testament, which will lead us to the teachings of our Savior, and then we'll, then we'll end out. I think, I think that'll be a good plan for us today. So the first thing is this. If you recall, Mark was written to the, the huddled and hiding persecuted church under, under the persecution of Nero, right? This is the Gentile Roman church in, in the mid to late 60s that is being tortured and killed by the Roman emperor Nero. They're the ones who receive this letter. And so that, that gives Mark this kind of unique feel in that he's, he's writing this, this gospel, which takes place entirely in first century Israel, and he's writing it to people who aren't first century Israelites, right? He's writing it to people in a different culture. And so the, because they're non-Jewish Gentile audience, you find Mark explaining a lot of weirdly basic things about Judaism. The problem is we can then assume, oh, this audience did not understand Judaism, but that's not the case at all. Rome was one of the largest hubs of Judaism, and, and these people actually would have had a lot of context for the faith, and, and we can see that because Mark chooses to explain some really basic tenets of Judaism and then also skips over a ton. Because there's a lot of things he just assumes his audience will already understand about the faith. But then there's certain things where he's like, well, they might not understand this piece. And so he explains it. This is one of them. Mark, Mark here is giving us this cursory picture of, of the rabbinic Talmudic system that, that he kind of assumes there's some working knowledge of that. And in, in, in the scattered Jew, like the Jewish nation, the Jews who were outside of Israel, Judaism was preserved by the rabbinic and synagogue system. So in Israel, we're, we're used to thinking of, of Judaism in this day as centering around the temple because Jesus' ministry in a lot of ways centered around the temple and they, he had run-ins with the temple officials and the Sadducees and those folk. But in the rest of the world, Judaism was essentially what, what we understand as Pharisaical Judaism or rabbinic Judaism that centered around life in the synagogue because there weren't other temples. The temple's just in Jerusalem. And so Judaism in Rome was centered around a number of synagogues. And the understanding of a rabbi who had disciples would have been like the most basic thing you would understand about Judaism. That's the faith that has those traveling rabbis with the guys that follow them. Yeah, I, I, know, I know them. They're weird. They don't eat certain foods. Like that's, that's the way people in Rome would have, would have understood the faith. And so Mark casually references this system that most of us don't fully understand in, in, from our reading today. And it's essentially this. 
And in that day, there was developing, leading up to the first century, and then for a significant amount of time after it, there was developing this new understanding of Judaism that centered around these traveling teachers called rabbis. Historically, going back to the Old Testament, the teaching of the faith, the preservation of, of the scriptures happened almost exclusively through the ministry of the Levites, through, through the priestly ministry. But because of the exile and the dispersion of the Jews, this new form of Judaism begins to rise that centers around these teachers, these rabbis. Rabbi simply means teacher. And they would travel from city to city and synagogue to synagogue, and they would bring interpretations and applications of the scripture. Have you guys ever read like the Torah, the first five books? You ever like sat down and just been like, you know what? I need like, I need some good devotional time. I'm going to dig through Leviticus. Like when you get into the Torah, most of it feels really weird and detached, right? When you get into a passage where it's like, well, if you find green mold in your house, go and find one of the priests and let them inspect the mold. If the mold turns out to be white, you may re-enter that. We read that stuff and we just go, what is this? It, it seems very disconnected from our understanding of the world. You have to realize for the Jews of Jesus's day, that was just as weird. They're 2000 years separated from the writing of the Torah they, that stuff is just as outside their context as it is ours. So when the Jews would sit in synagogue and they would, the, the, the person would come up and they would give their reading and they would tell them things about mold in their home and purity laws and the sacrifices you give at the temple, none of that had any context for these folk because they go, I don't live in Israel. I don't live near a temple. I, I don't work with livestock how am I going to get access to a sheep, much less get it to Jerusalem to kill it? None of those things make sense to me. And so the rabbis would come along and they would interpret the scripture and they would say, listen, I understand that because of the exile, you're no longer living in Israel. You're no longer living near the temple. Here's what the scriptures still mean for you. Here's how you can still be Jewish. Here's how you can still honor the living and true God. And they, they built what was called hedges, where they would take the laws of Torah, the, the purity laws, the moral laws, the ethical laws, the, all the different cultural laws, and they would give interpretations of them to go, hey, you know what? We know you can't do this anymore. That doesn't make sense. But here's what you can do. Here's, here's a way that law can make sense for you living in Rome. And so they would build these interpretations and these interpretations, their yokes that the rabbi would have, their interpretation of scripture became, became really important, really sacred. You can actually read a lot of them. A lot of these interpretations given by different rabbis have been preserved in Jewish writings, Talmudic writings to, to this day that you can go and study them. Not a lot from this point in history, but the next couple hundred years after Christ, a lot of those rabbis' yokes have been really well preserved that you can study. And it's Actually, from, from a purely like academic thing, it's really interesting to see how these teachers would come along and go, we know God is real, we know he's powerful, but the Torah doesn't make sense anymore. Here's how you can make sense of it. It's really interesting, and it's an important ministry that existed. And so these, these rabbis would travel around, they would give these interpretations, and, and folk would come to life under this and realize, my, 
my God, like, I can still engage the person of God. I can still live a life that's honoring to him. And they would, they would follow after these rabbis. They would become their students and they would learn their interpretation and learn their yoke. And then they would become rabbis and they would continue the teaching. This system was really well established by Jesus's day that, that rabbis would travel and they would gain authority and people would seek them out to say, I want to be your student. I want to learn from you. I want to submit to your yoke that I can teach your interpretation. And that, that would become their, their disciple or their, their Talmudim and they would learn their interpretation of law. And then at some point that the rabbi would say, you're no longer my student. You're, 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 you're equal to me. You can go and do this work. That was, that was a thing that existed in that day. So Jesus is playing into, on some ways, a really normal role as a rabbi. But he's also insanely subverting the expectations of a rabbi at this point in a couple ways. The first one is Jesus walks up to these guys and says, hey, you should follow me. That's not how rabbis found their students. That was not the norm. In fact, there's only one other recorded instance ever of a rabbi calling his own students. Students came to the rabbi and pledged themselves essentially saying, I want to be your student. And the rabbi would test them and determine whether or not they could do that. But Jesus comes up to these guys and goes, you, 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 come on. And they drop what they're doing and they follow him. And this, this is loaded with cultural significance because, because the reality is these dudes were not rabbi material or they wouldn't have been fishing. If, if they were good enough at interpreting scripture to be rabbis, they would have followed after a rabbi and become a disciple years before this point. The fact that they're out working their trade means they are dropouts. And so Jesus comes to these dropouts in the midst of their labor and says, you guys are gonna be my students. This was culturally weighty. This, this was something where people would have gone, wait, what? What, what did he just do? And, and what's interesting about it is it gives us a little bit of the context into why they so quickly and readily just went, heck yes, and dropped their nets. Because Jesus is looking at these men and saying, you can be my follower. You, you, you can understand my yoke, my teaching, my interpretation. You can do that. Come with me. That, that kind of affirmation would have been culturally weighty. You, I mean, have, you, have any of you read this story and wondered why Zebedee didn't raise any objections <laughs> to his boys leaving the family, like just leaving him sitting there holding the nets and they just walk away? The, there's something about this that, that, yeah, that would have been terrifying and that would have cost him a lot and that would have been a big deal for their family business. But at the same time, he understood what was happening in that moment. That rabbi just said, my boys can do this. He, he, he just said, they, they can be rabbis. That's, that's amazing. That's, that's like the dad, like backstage, the voice going, come on, turn your chair, turn your chair. Like, like that's, that's that moment that, that, that Zebedee just saw like, whoa, this guy just saw something in my boys and, and, and he called it out. And now, and now, and now they get to go do that. That's, that's crazy. 
Uh, along with this, uh, uh, another little cultural piece we might miss here, and this one is really interesting because it's unique to the way Mark chooses to present this story to us, is you notice when Jesus walks up, he, he finds Simon and Andrew casting out their nets by hand, not from a boat. They're, they're doing they're, they're doing fishing close to the shore. The image here is of dudes that would wade out basically to armpit depth and throw their nets and then drag them in together, two guys partnering together. Jesus calls out to them and says, you guys come follow me. And then they walk along and the next two people he calls are these two guys that are sitting in their boat with their father and their employees working for their family business. And he calls them and they leave their father, they leave the business and they come and they join him. The, the image here that Mark gives us is of a social disparity. You're talking about the guys who have the small business, the guys who make less money, who are less successful, and then the dudes who have actually been successful and they're building a business with employees. There's this, there's this economic difference in the way Mark presents the story that, that I think is important for us because what it shows is Jesus is not making this call to these, to these four men based on their spiritual capability or based on their social or economic status. He's, he's making a call that is unique. And, and that comes out, I mean, that comes out in some of the language he uses with them. So, so we're going to talk for just a second about this phrase, fishers of men, that, that Jesus chooses to use. But, but to, to suffice to say in, in this exact, like right now, that's, that's connecting Jesus' call back to the prophetic ministry right around the time of the exile. So, so he's, he's bringing to mind, he's operating in this current rabbinic system of submit to a teacher and learn their yoke, but he's also referencing back to the prophetic ministry of men like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, and he subverts both of them because when a rabbi calls a teacher, they call the student, or when a rabbi calls a student, the rabbi calls the student to an allegiance to Torah, an allegiance to the word. When a rabbi calls a student, it's saying, hey, the word is so important. You need to pledge yourself to the word and I will help you interpret it. And when the prophets would call the people, they would call the people submission to the person of God. They would say, you are out of fellowship with God. You must follow him. You must submit to him. And here you have Jesus saying, follow me, which is a very loaded phrase because he's not calling them to give their allegiance to the word and he's not calling them to give their allegiance to God and yet by calling them to himself, he's calling them to both. He's calling them to give their lives fully to the word and fully to God by following him. That's, that's a heavy call. Let's talk really quickly about how Mark presents this story because it's really quick and it's really brief and it doesn't contain a lot of detail in it. But the way Mark tells this story, I don't know if you guys caught this, but more than anything else, Mark's telling of this story is urgent. It's, it's fast paced. It's a lot immediately, right? 
It, it happens quickly. I, when I read this, like I almost get the image of Jesus like jogging past them, like, come on, come on. Like, and obviously not really, but, but you get what I'm saying, right? He comes back to Galilee and, and hits the ground running with his ministry. The kingdom is at hand. The time is now. Repent and believe you. Follow me, you, follow me, you, follow me. Come on, let's do this. And they immediately drop what they're doing and they do it. Mark tells the story with this urgency. And, and it's connected to this phrase, fishers of men. Uh, that's, that phrase has become so, so common in, in the Christian like, like dictionary, right? We're so used to that phrase that I think we miss its Old Testament weightiness. This is a phrase that was used multiple times in the age of the prophets. I want to give you guys one specific reference. You can find this phrase in Jeremiah 16. I'll read this to you. Jeremiah was a prophet who ministered essentially right before, during, and right after the final exile of the southern kingdom in Judah. Uh, and, and everyone hated him because he just walked around saying how awful they were and how God was going to judge them. If, you ever, like, if you're ever at a place where you're just, you're struggling with, to find joy in Christ, I do not recommend Jeremiah for your personal devotion time because it's about 90% you're awful and God's going to punish you. Uh, but but there, there are these moments in Jeremiah where he just lays into the people and 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 they say, stop it. And they beat him up and they let him go. And then he lays into the people and he lays into the people. And then he'll have these moments where he says, but, but that's not all God's going to do. He's not just going to hate you and punish you forever. And, and then he, he gives these, these prophecies of, of hope about the future, about what God is doing, not just right now in judgment, but what it, God is doing in his overarching plan. That's what we find in Jeremiah 16. I'm going to start in verse 14. I'll read this to you. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when it shall no longer be said as the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the north country and out of all the countries where he had driven them. For I will bring them back to their own land that I gave to their fathers. Behold, I am sending out many fishermen, declares the Lord, and they shall catch them. And afterward, I will send out many hunters and they shall hunt them out from every mountain and every hill and out of the clefts of the rocks for my eyes are on all their ways. They are not hidden from me, nor is their iniquity concealed from my eyes. But first, I will doubly repay all their iniquity and their sin because they have polluted my land with the carcasses of their detestable idols and have filled my inheritance with their abominations." O oh Lord, my strength and my stronghold, my refuge in the day of trouble, to you shall the nations come from the ends of the earth and say, our fathers have inherited nothing but lies, worthless things in which there is no profit. Can a man make for himself a God? Such things are not gods, right? So, so Jeremiah says, listen, God is about to crush you guys and it's going to be really, really bad. But someday God will gather you up so completely and he will restore you so powerfully and he will bless you so intensely that when people think of the Jewish people, they'll go, oh yeah, that's the people that God drew back from exile and blessed. And then he, then he connects that to this idea of, all the nations will come to God. 
that I will, I will send out my fishermen and my hunters and I will draw to me my people from all the nations. This, this, is, this is the promise that, that is left hanging in the air during the time of the exile when, when God's people are experiencing the intense suffering and persecution that came from the Babylonian, Assyrian, and Persian empires that destroyed Israel. These promises are left hanging. And you guys, a lot of you know that, that after that age of the prophets, there was this time of silence during the exile where, where there was no word from God, there was no prophecy, and God's people were just there waiting and waiting and waiting. And when we when we stepped into Mark, if you guys recall, John the Baptist comes on the scene and he calls back to these prophets and he says, guys, the time is now. God is doing the new thing right now and things are about to change. And then Jesus gets baptized by him and God declares, yes, this is the new thing right here. You're looking at him. I'm about to do something new and things are going to change. And then Jesus goes and begins his ministry and what does he declare? The time is now. The kingdom is at hand. Things are about to change. And so when he goes to these fishermen and says, hey, not only can you do this, but I'm going to make you fishers of men because God is doing something new and he is calling to him a people from all nations. And, and the thing is, Jesus's ministry is not just a ministry of proclamation. This kingdom is not just a prophet coming and warning the people. This kingdom is a community. And, and God is calling people to him and he is drawing them together as family and he is giving that family a task and that task is to go and call the nations to God. So what he says to these men is, I will make you fishers of men. He's pointing them to the urgency of God's impending judgment. He's saying, it is about to go down. So drop what you're doing and let's go. And they do. All these factors come together, right? He's, he's affirming them. He's, he's pushing back against the social, the status quo of the culture, the normative narrative of that day. He's, he's pushing through social standings and spiritual standings and the way people are viewed. And he is ultimately declaring, God is doing something new right now and there is no time to dally you got to come right now. And they do. That's intense. That's intense. And I think that brings us to the point of the story. I think that brings us to why Mark chose to preserve this and why he preserved it in the way he did. And it's simply this, beloved, the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom is at hand. Repent and believe now. Don't, don't think on this. Don't chew on it. Don't prepare yourself. Don't, don't make sure you're, like, don't get things together. Just engage the kingdom because it's right now. Jesus's life and ministry inaugurated the new covenant that God had promised to his people centuries before. He brought about the new covenant. God has called his children back to him. And beloved, if you are in Christ, that is you. 
You have been fished and hunted and you have been drawn back to the God who called you from, it will no longer be said the God who saved his people from slavery in Egypt, but the God who has drawn his children from every corner of the earth and brought them to himself. Beloved, that is you. You are the children that God has called and drawn from every corner of the earth. And if we sat down and all shared our testimony the way Jeff did, we would know that because we come from every corner. Our stories are all different, wildly different, and yet God in his grace has fished us out. He sought us. He, he used his community, his people, his kingdom to draw us to him. Beloved, the gospel message is simply this. The Lord meets us in the midst of our hurts, in the midst of our stories, in the midst of our uniqueness, and he calls us. He calls us to life. He calls us to freedom. He calls us to what Jesus calls the abundant life. Shalom, peace, completeness. True community, true freedom. The Lord meets us in the midst of our junk, and he calls us. Think about, for a moment, the four men Jesus called in this story. God calls normal folk in the midst of the curse that envelops them. Every single one of us lives in a broken and cursed world, and it affects us in a myriad of ways. And God in his grace meets us in the midst of that and calls us to his kingdom. So it begs the question, if that is so beautiful and so compelling, why does it seem so much harder than that? If it's literally just God showed up in my mess and said, I love you, follow me. If, it, if it's really that simple, why does it seem so much weightier than that and so much heavier than that? The simple answer, beloved, is because it is. Discipleship has a cost and it has a weighty cost. Discipleship, calling to the kingdom, life in Christ, is the definition of freedom. I, I cannot say that with, with enough force. Life in Christ is the purest expression of life and freedom, but it is costly. Beloved, we must be careful not, not to take Jesus's radical call to walk away from financial security and social standing and family and, and write it off as mere hyperbole, as though that was Jesus's call to those men then, but today and now he is more than comfortable with our pursuit of our own kingdoms and our own comfort and our own wealth and our own social standing and our own families because that is a bold-faced lie from the pit of hell and you must reject it. The call of our God is a radical one. It's worth it, but it is heavy. Jesus asks these men to sign a blank contract. 
He, he offers them nothing but commitment and obedience with no details. He says, listen, God is doing something new. I promise you, you wanna be a part of it. Let's go. Don't think, don't plan, let's go. And they do it, they go. And beloved, if you don't think, if you don't think that commitment cost those men, spend a few minutes in church history. It's, it's easy to say, well, Jesus did most of his ministry in Capernaum, so Peter was following him, but he was probably, I mean, he was probably able to work sometimes, and like, they hung out at his house, right? So like, obviously, he didn't lose his house or anything. Like, he was good. Beloved, 30 years later, Peter sat and watched while they killed his wife and children. And, and they told him, if you, if you walk away from this Christ, if you denounce him to your church, we will let you go. And he said, no. Then he watched them kill his children. And he watched them kill his wife. And then they crucified him and killed him. By the way, that church is the church hearing this story. That church that, that Peter refused to denounce Christ in front of and paid that price. That church is the one that's hearing this story read to them as Jesus offers this man a blank contract and says, sign it, it's worth it. Whew. The cost of following Christ is more than you can imagine. This is why Jesus says in Luke, who of you would, would build a tower without first sitting down and making sure you had enough money to complete it? Because no one wants to be that guy who has a half-built tower. How many of you guys go to Branson? I think I've said this before. Is anyone of you go to Branson? You have Branson people in here? Everyone's like, I'm not admitting that here in <laughs> Red <laughs> There is this neighborhood in Branson it's like really like these huge like mansion houses that's like 80% built has a huge like 20 foot wide arrowhead at the entrance of the neighborhood and the houses look like something out of a horror movie because they're like 80% built and just sitting there rotting because the contractor ran out of money and it's just sitting. Who of you, if you were building a tower would not first sit down and make sure you had enough money to build it? Guys, the, the cost of following Christ is weighty you should consider that. But don't consider it too long because the benefit of following Christ is worth the cost. It is worth the cost. It is, it is worth the loss of social standing. It is worth the risk to your financial welfare. It is worth the, the risk to your relation, like your relationships with your family and your friends. It is, it is worth it. The gospel, the gospel is absolutely worth the cost. Think of Jesus' words to us in Mark 8. He says, calling the crowd to him and his disciples, he said to them, if any of you would follow me, let him deny himself, let him take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's sake will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? You know, there's a funny thing about fishing. It kills the fish. 
I don't know if you guys have noticed that. Some of you are like, hey, I'm a catch and release guy. Yeah, you just jammed a metal hook through that thing's lungs. If you, if you net a fish and you drag that bad boy out of the water and throw him on the deck of your boat or on land if you're, if you're Simon, apparently, if you net that fish and you drag it up out of the water, it immediately begins to experience the sensation of drowning because it was not built for the air. And being drawn out of the water kills it. It may still be alive. It may still be flopping around and poking you with its spiny fins or whatever, but it's dead or dying. Beloved, this is, this is the truth of the gospel. He, 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 he speaks to us. He speaks to us in the midst of, of the curse and how it affects us. He, he calls us to him in the midst of the weightiness of this world. And when we say yes to the call, it immediately feels like death. Because what he asks of you seems so weighty. It seems too much to ask. And it seems like that there has to be some other way, Jesus. There, there has to be a way where I can follow you and be a part of your work, but, but also live for the things of this world. That, that ha- I if, I, if I don't live into what this world tells me to live for, that will kill me. And Jesus says, you are right, it will. Let it kill you. Because, because we worship a God who draws us out of the water and as our gills long for the nasty, nasty lake water of this world and as we feel the life leaving us, we worship a God who gives us lungs, who, who gives us air to breathe, that, that has within it life, that, that has within it freedom, Jesus said this in John 12, truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls onto the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life will lose it and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the father will honor him. Jesus, he, he, call, he calls us. He calls us to follow him. He, he calls us to drop everything for the sake of the kingdom, to risk and to let go of everything for the sake of the kingdom, that more might be drawn into life, that this communal kingdom might see more people find life and freedom in Christ. He, he calls us to join in that. And beloved, I know it's a high entrance fee. The kingdom is at hand. The time is now. Let's go.